Well, in uh, today's message, I've borrowed some themes and ideas from a particular author that is a favorite of mine, a man by the name of John Ortberg. And that includes this opening story, which I'd just like to share that I think sets up our, our message very well. John writes this. He says, some time ago, my wife got me a very unique birthday present, a ride in a hot air balloon. We went to the field where all of the hot air balloons were inflated, and we met one other couple we would go up with. We chatted for a bit. We shared what we did for a living. They told us what they did. Then we got in the basket, and the pilot began the balloon's ascent. It was a beautiful day. It was scenic. This was Southern California. We could look out over the hills. We could see all the way to the ocean. It was a majestic sight, and I was excited and inspired. But I experienced one other emotion I hadn't anticipated, fear. The balloon basket went up about to knee high. One good lurch, I thought, and I'd be right out of there. My palms began to sweat, my heart began to pound, and I was gripping the ropes. I thought I was the most frightened person in the basket until I looked over and saw my wife's face. I decided it might be a good idea to get to know something about the guy who was flying this balloon. After all, we would place our destinies in his hands. Our lives rested on the competence and in the character of the man that was piloting the balloon. And so I inched over towards him and asked, so what do you do for a living? How did you get started flying balloons? I was hoping that he would say something like he was a neurosurgeon or that he started flying hot air balloons because he used to be an astronaut and he just missed flying. But I knew we were in trouble with his, when his response began with, well, it's like this, dude. <laughs> he didn't actually have a job, he said. He mostly just surfed. He said he began flying hot air balloons after he was driving his pickup truck and had too much to drink. He had gotten into a rather bad accident and injured his brother, who was no longer able to get along too well. He started flying hot air balloons to give his brother something to watch. Then he said, by the way, when we descend, if the descent is just a little bumpy, it's because I've never flown this particular balloon before, and I'm not quite sure how it's going to go when we go down. My wife immediately said to me, you mean we're a thousand feet up in the air with an unemployed surfer who started flying hot air balloons because he was driving his pickup truck drunk and crashed it and crippled his brother and he's never flown this balloon before and he doesn't know how to get it down. (laughs) The other couple had not spoken a word during the whole flight, but now the wife spoke up for the only time during the journey. She said to me, you're a pastor, do something religious. Uh, you know, that's, that's a great story because, I wish it was my story, but it's not. It's a great story because the question that we all need to ask is, can I trust the pilot? Can I trust the pilot? You know, in essence, we live on a, a giant balloon that spins around the sun. And every day around this world when people wake up, a great question that many ask is, is there somebody piloting this thing? Somebody that can be trusted. Now, many people have concluded there's not, and they trust in themselves to be their own pilot. Others put their trust in faith, just faith, faith in faith. If I just believe enough. But that's really all a game. The real issue is, is somebody 
piloting this thing? And can someone be trusted? Are his competence and his character such that I can, with confidence, place my destiny in his hands? And if we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, then the answer should be yes, absolutely there is. But that requires some real faith. Not the faith that just says, I hope, but a real faith, a faith that is intimately connected to risk. You see, there can be no faith without risk. And risk often is connected to fear. And so faith includes fear, it includes risk, and it includes sometimes failure. And so that brings us to the text that we're going to look at today. It's in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 14. Now the events that we're going to look at take place on a particular day in Jesus' life. He has found out that his, his cousin, John the Baptist, has been killed. He has taken his disciples in a boat across the lake to go to a solitary place where he can find rest and solace. But a great crowd of people, as they often do, has found Jesus. And they come with their needs, with their desires, with their questions. And he spends the day meeting those needs, talking about those questions. And during that day, Jesus performs one of his more large-scale miracles when he feeds a crowd of more than 5,000 people with one young boy's sack lunch. And the event that follows then is the event that we'll look at today. And it illustrates for us the necessity of the power of faith in our lives as it intersects with risk and ultimately results in reward. And so let's take a look beginning in verse 22 of chapter 14. The very first word there says immediately. Immediately. Now this happens after what? This great miracle that the disciples have witnessed. They've been intimately involved with the miracle as they've distributed the food and collected the leftovers. They know what Jesus has done. It's an astounding miracle. But immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said, Peter, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped Jesus, saying, You 
are certainly God's son. Faith requires a number of things. One of the things it requires is that we risk some failure. Real faith requires risking failure. According to verse 24, when this storm came along, it was so rough that the disciples couldn't make it across the lake. Now remember, these are professional fishermen. They'd been at sea on this lake many, many times. But verse 25 tells us that they are, they are frightened, and it's then that Jesus comes in the fourth watch of the night. That's sometime between 3 and 6 in the morning. So it's the middle of the night. And picture in your mind, if you will, the size of the waves, the strength of the wind and the darkness of the night. Picture this little boat struggling to avoid being capsized. Matthew says that the boat was tormented by the waves. That's the the original language. It's tormented. The men are cold. They're wet. They're exhausted. They are clearly terrified. These are the conditions under which Peter is going to get out of the boat. Now, I have never walked on water. Does that happen to anybody here? I didn't think so. I would think it would be difficult enough to get out of the boat in the middle of a lake and try to walk on water when it's calm and it's daylight and the sun is out. That would take about as much courage as the average person could probably muster. So imagine doing it when the waves are crashing and the wind is at gale force and it's three in the morning and the night is black and Peter gets out and he falls. He doesn't make it. It's a failure, isn't it? Or is it? I wonder if you've ever failed a test, if you've ever been cut from a team, if you ever didn't get the job or lost out on the promotion, or didn't get the grade you expected, if you've ever been impatient with a young child, if you've ever said the wrong thing, or stuck your foot in your mouth, if you've ever experienced failure of any kind. Does that resonate with anybody? You understand what failure is? You see, all of us are would-be water walkers. And God did not intend for human beings, his children created in his divine image to go through life in a desperate attempt to avoid failure. And yet so often, that's how we live our lives. You see, we we like to stay in the boat because the boat is safe. The boat is secure. The boat can be comfortable. And as we look out, the water is high and the waves are rough and the wind is strong and the night is dark around us. There's a storm out there. And if we get out of our boat, we just might sink. But if we don't get out of the boat, we will never walk. Because you see, if we want to walk on the water, we have to get out of the boat. As followers of Jesus Christ, there is something, really someone inside us that tells us that our lives are about something more than just sitting in the boat cruising through life. There's something in us pushing us to walk on the water. Something that is calling us to leave the 
the, the routines of comfortable existence and instead to pursue the adventure of following Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus comes to his disciples. He comes to them on that sea and the disciples see him walking on the water and the scripture says that they are terrified. Who wouldn't be? And Jesus calls out, have no fear, it's me. And really what, what he's communicating to them is, guys, you can trust me. Trust my character. Trust my confidence. You can safely, without reservation, with no hesitation, place your life in my hands. You have this storm around you, but you have me. Recognize which is more powerful. And so Peter, sitting in the boat, says, All right, Lord, if it's really you, if it's really you, command me to come out there. Jesus, what does he say? Come on out, Peter. Come on down. And so just picture that. Picture this. Peter, maybe he sticks one leg over the edge of the boat, kind of feel what's down there, and oh my goodness, it, it feels like it's solid. Then he puts the other leg out. Then, then he's, he's standing, and he lets go of the boat. Oh my goodness. He is standing on the water. Can you imagine that? And he's still standing, and he, he sees Jesus. And he begins to take steps towards Jesus. Wow. Another step and another step. For the first time in history, in the history of the human race, an ordinary mortal man is walking on the water. And just for a moment, it's just Peter and Jesus. What a magnificent moment in time. What a highlight in your life. And then just as quickly, all of a sudden, Peter realizes what he's doing. He looks around and he sees the waves crashing and the, the sting of the water hitting his face. And, oh my goodness, his, face, his, faith, his faith gives way. And he slips back into fear. And he begins to sink. The question is, did he fail? Did he fail? I think this text redefines failure, failure in, the, in the life of a, a follower of Jesus Christ. Failure is not so much an event. It is the way that we interpret or judge an event. It's a label that we attach to it. Did you know that Jonas Salk attempted 200 unsuccessful vaccines for polio before he found one that worked? One time somebody asked him, how did it feel to fail 200 times to invent a vaccine for polio. And this was his response. I never failed 200 times at anything in my life. My family taught me never to use that word. I simply discovered 200 ways how not to make a vaccine for polio. It's a great attitude. And so did Peter fail? Well, in one sense, I guess, yeah, his faith gave way. He couldn't stay locked into Jesus, and so he sank. He failed. But, but you know what? There were 11 other guys in that boat that were far greater failures. They failed privately. They failed quietly. Their failure was safe, unnoticed, uncriticized as they sat in the boat. 
It was only Peter that experienced the shame of public failure. Only Peter then, though, that knew the glory of walking on the water. And only Peter knew in in a way that no one else ever would, that when he sank, Jesus would be right there. He knew, he knew that Jesus was adequate to save. Peter had shared a moment, a connection that was wonderful. But it never would have happened if he wouldn't have got out of the boat. And so faith requires risking failure. We have to risk failure if we're going to do anything for God. So what does it mean to get out of the boat? That's a cool phrase, get out of the boat. Sounds exciting. You might be thinking, yeah, I could do that. But what do I do? What does it mean to get out of the boat? Well, I think the heart of it is the choice to become a disciple of Jesus. And that's what this second point is about, our second lesson on faith. Faith requires choosing Jesus. And I want you to understand something very clearly. A disciple is not someone that simply believes in certain things so that they'll go to heaven when they die. Too much of modern Christianity is based upon that understanding. It's much more than that. A disciple, a true disciple, is someone who says, it is my ultimate goal to live the way Jesus would live if he were with me here today. You see, we don't just accidentally drift into discipleship. We have to choose. The question is, will we choose self or will we choose Jesus? And so now this this step of discipleship, this choosing Jesus, may look a, a bit different for different people because we're all different. Because we all need to learn different things. I want to be clear that you understand that. When we choose Jesus, we're not talking about initially choosing Jesus to receive him. But what I'm talking about when I'm talking about choosing Jesus is people that have already done that. We're past the point of choosing Jesus, and now we're making an ongoing decision to choose Jesus, to live with Jesus, to follow Jesus, to learn from him. And what you will find out is that when you choose Jesus consistently, that one other thing will often occur, and that is fear. Fear will happen over and over again. So what's important is how we choose to react. Will we react to that fear in ourself, trying to be overcomers, trying to be brave, or staying hunkered down in our boat? Or will we choose to allow God's Spirit to live and work in us to overcome that fear? Because that is what God wants to do. Jesus commands the disciples to get into the boat. And they do that. And then the storm comes and they're afraid. Jesus comes to them on the sea. And when they see him, they are terrified. Jesus says, take heart, don't be afraid. Peter asks what he's supposed to do. Jesus says, take the next step. 
And so Peter gets out of the boat, walks, and then he sinks. And what does he experience? More fear. See a theme there? Jesus rescues him once again. And that is not the last time that Peter is going to face panic or fear in his life. You see, to be a disciple is to be a learner or a student. It is to choose to grow in Christ. And growth means entering new territory, doing things that might be uncomfortable to us, getting out of the boat. But here's the amazing thing about discipleship. Every time you get out of the boat, every time you enter a new challenge area, even though you experience fear, Jesus is there. He's there to grab your hand. Discipleship is a consistent choice between comfort or risk. To be a disciple is to renounce comfort and to take a risk for Jesus. Now, that's a hard lesson for a lot of us because we live in a culture that loves comfort, right? We love comfort. We like to come home and say, I want to sit on my couch, pick up my remote, point it at my TV, and just kind of veg out. What do we call those people? Couch potatoes. That's not great training for discipleship. We could take that analogy and put it on those 11 guys in the boat, and we could call them boat potatoes. You see, they didn't want to run the risk. They didn't want to experience the fear. They didn't want to get out of the boat. You know, sometimes churches are full of folks who we might call pew potatoes. People whose religious faith amounts to little more than spiritual padding that will add comfort to their lives. You know, we've got a pretty nice boat. We haven't been out of it in a long time. It's pretty comfortable in there. Maybe we can remember back to a time, a long time ago, when we stepped out of the boat, maybe even on a regular basis. Jesus, give me the word, and I'll come. But maybe, just maybe, we've gotten a little comfortable in our boat, and we don't step out very often anymore. Here's a story that illustrates this. A man by the name of Peter Sinchin writes this story. He says, my brothers and I had traveled to the western edge of Zimbabwe to raft the Zambezi River. We boarded our raft at the base of the Victoria Falls. Massive amounts of water spilled over the top of the giant falls and dropped almost a thousand feet. The roar was deafening. The falls are the largest in the world, more than a mile wide and 300 feet high. Mist from the spray that fills the air like fog can be seen for 50 miles away. The water from the falls rushes down the gorge in torrents, creating the world's largest rapids. In the United States, the highest class rapid that you're allowed to, to raft is a class 5. The Zambezi's whitewater rapids can top 7 or class 8. And so Peter writes as he sat on the edge of that eight-person raft, all suited up in a tight, overstuffed life jacket and a thick crash helmet, he found himself thinking, the Zambezi can't be that dangerous, can it? But then he said, the guide was giving instruction, and he said, 
when the wrath flips. <laughs> Peter said there, there was no if the wrath flips or on the off chance we get flipped, but when the wrath flips, he went on and he said, stay in the rough water. The guide said, you will be tempted to swim toward the calm water at the edge of the banks. Don't do it. Because it is in the calm water that the crocodiles wait for you. They are large and they are very hungry. And even when the raft flips, stay in the rough water. I like that story. You see, staying in the boat or heading for the calm water or sitting in the pew, those things... Those will damage our spirit. You see, God needs us out there in the rough water. He needs us pouring ourselves into the lives of others. He needs us choosing to follow his radical ways that are so different than the world around us. He wants us walking on the water where it's just a little bit uncertain and a little bit unsafe. See, walking on the water is about coming to Jesus, about choosing Jesus. And if we try it, we might sink. But here's the magnificent truth. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because Jesus is adequate to save sinking people. Peter gets out of the boat. Suddenly he notices the strong wind and he becomes frightened and he begins to sink. And what does he cry out? Lord, save me. Lord, save me. A confession of the lordship of Jesus Christ and a plea for deliverance. And Jesus immediately reaches out his hand and catches Peter. Now let's be clear. The point is not that Jesus will instantly always bail you out of every problem. That's not what it says. The point is that he is always ready to respond. There is no failure that can place you beyond the loving care of the hand of God. Jesus is always adequate to save sinking people. Faith requires risking failure. Faith requires choosing Jesus Finally, faith results in remarkable results. Peter got out of the boat. And as a result of his failure and the saving hand of Christ, what happens? The rest of the guys in the boat see this and they worship Christ. Surely you are the Son of God. You see, when people get out of the boat... The power of God is put into play and remarkable results occur. People see God working in, their in our lives. And our willingness to choose risk and to step out onto the water is inspiring to others. They see the work of God as we cry out, Lord, save me. But we must Take the risk to experience the reward. A few weeks ago, Sue and two of our daughters visit, visited Washington, D.C. 
and in one of the museums that we visited, I came across this remarkable historical account. It was October of 1781, and General Cornwallis marched his British troops into Yorktown. The patriots to the south had wreaked havoc on the Redcoat Army, and so he was hoping to rendezvous with the British Navy at Chesapeake Bay. The American troops, however, had anticipated Cornwallis's plan, and they began to pound the town of Yorktown with cannon fire while the French fleet swept in and blocked off any escape by sea. And so the British found themselves trapped. Thomas Nelson, who was then the, van, uh, the governor of Virginia, he was a, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, was fighting with the Patriots as they were firing cannons into Yorktown. And at one point he gathered his men together and he pointed down into the town and he said, see that beautiful brick home towering above all the other homes? That is my home. It is the finest home in the town. And because of that, Lord Cornwallis has almost certainly set up the British headquarters inside my home. And then he gave instructions to the American artillerymen to open fire on his own home. And they did. And as the story goes, the very first cannonball shot at Mr. Nelson's house sailed right through a large dining room window and landed right on the table where several British officers were eating lunch. Before the fighting was over, the house was completely destroyed. You see, it's one thing for a man to talk about freedom. It's quite another to destroy his own home to make that freedom a reality. Nelson understood, however, that to, to hold on to his current life would mean forfeiting the life that he was so desperately seeking. So in essence, he made a decision that day to get out of the boat. No matter the cost, no matter the consequences, he couldn't sit in the safety of the boat any longer. When people get out of the boat, remarkable results occur. What if we all were to say, I want to get out of the boat? What if everybody in this room today were to say, Jesus, command me, I am yours? Can you imagine the kind of power that God would release in this community, in our lives? see, Jesus is still looking for people to get out of the boat. And if you do, you will face problems. There is a storm out there. Your faith will not be perfect. And there will be times when you begin to sink. But two things are true. When you fail, and you will, Jesus will be there. He will pick you up. He will not leave you alone. That is a most remarkable reward. And then every once in a while, just every once in a while, we're going to walk on the water. We're going to have that amazing experience. 
us to being locked in to Jesus. What a blessing. What a remarkable result that is.